Hello, everyone. This is Pete Van Epps with Camera Brooks. Welcome to another edition of the Camera Brooks podcast. Um, in this episode, I interviewed Derek Walsh. Derek is the Vice President of Operations Administration at Behavioral Health Group, which is a leading provider of opioid addiction treatment services uh, across the country. So Derek is a former Army Air Defense Artillery Officer, and in this podcast, we get into um, a, a little bit about his decision-making process and going to work for BHG. We also talk about finding ways to make immediate impact, make an immediate impact at work and being uh, effective in overcoming the learning curve. And then lastly, we get into some a little bit about uh, what he's working on professionally. So I think you'll really enjoy the episode. Derek is a great resource and gives some fantastic advice about um, leadership and uh, and through his experiences. If you want to know more about Cameron Brooks, I'd encourage you to check out our website, Cameron-Brooks.com. I'd also encourage you to pick up a copy of PCS to Corporate America, written by Roger Cameron, co-authored by our president and CEO, Chuck Alvarez, and our senior vice president, Joel Junker. Okay, on to the podcast. Here's Derek. All right, Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a part of the Cameron Brooks podcast today. Pete, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Well, I'm excited to uh, to get into it here a little bit with you. I uh, I've spent some time working. Uh, you know, the, the interesting thing, uh, you, you, of course, you and I talked about it. You, you and I didn't really get a chance to know each other. You came through this program before I actually got to Cameron Brooks, so I'm really excited to uh, hear about your experiences and kind of walk through this with you. And so, again, thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to do it, Pete. In fact, I I probably know more about you than you realize. I've, I've had a couple <laughs> of really really great friends uh, go through the process since I've been there. You know, I've sort of referred them that way. They made it in. And, yeah. Um, you know, it's been great that you've you've shepherded. You don't know this, but you've actually shepherded a lot of my friends into into great cool. careers on the yeah, that's, that's civilian great. side. Thank you for saying that. That's great. Well, let's kind of start at the top. Why don't Why don't you just share with everyone? Um, prior to what you're doing now, and even prior, prior to making the transition, what did you do in the military? What was some of your military experience like? Yeah, so I graduated from the University of Texas at Austin uh, in, in May of 2006, and I was an active Army officer commissioned into the Air Defense Artillery Corps, which was you know, not my first choice per se. Uh, in fact, it, it was a little bit obscure at the time, um, but you know, like all things in the Army, sometimes it's a little mysterious how you find your way, but but things end up turning out okay for you. Uh, right. I had initially wanted to go into intelligence. My my degree was actually in Russian and Eastern European studies, and so intelligence was the path I wanted to walk, but uh, the Army saw fit to slot me in the air defense artillery, and then that's where I, I sort of made my home. So I was initially stationed in El Paso, which at the time was kind of the home of the, you know, the main schooling and offices of the, of the air defense that's since moved to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, initially stationed there, you know, kind of all the typical platoon leader work. I was a, you know, a, a lieutenant work, a platoon leader, uh, became a company XO. And in the air defense world, you sort of work at a tactical level. You know, in addition to your normal PL duties, you're, you're really charged with coming, becoming a subject matter expert with the weapon system. In particular, to my experience, it was the Patriot missile system. A lot of folks know this from kind of the Gulf War videos and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, and and as, a, as a young lieutenant, you are very quickly you know, thrust into the fire to learn this weapon system, understand that, uh, that it's critical that you don't make mistakes, uh, learn how to set it up, tear it down, move it, uh, and all that. So I was, I was able to 
employ all of that training and experience in Korea for, for a year, 2008-2009, um, made captain, came back to the States, uh, where I stayed with the same unit the entire time, which was which is a little bit of a unique circumstance. We we came down on orders to deploy to the Middle East and, and not to Iraq or Afghanistan, but one of the uh, there's a couple of bases there that support those operations, and all of those are protected uh, by the Patriot Missile Defense System. And so where I come from in the Army, we we deploy to those areas and and allow freedom of maneuver to all the folks supporting the fight in some of those critical you know frontline areas. Sure. So. It was off to the Middle East, uh, where I spent uh, half of my time on staff as kind of a fire direction section officer in charge in one part of the Middle East, and then I was able to pick up and move. I was slotted for command, sort of pre, you know, without having to go to the command course, which was nice. Uh, I took command of a deployed unit um, in another country there, actually during a fairly interesting time. It was during the days of rage back in 2011, so it was uh, it was an interesting time to do it. Lots of challenges, lots of opportunities, and, and you know, I hold those memories dear. Upon returning uh, to America, I, that was really when I made my decision. I, I was about five and a half years in at that point. Um, I knew I would have my command under my belt, you know, to boot a deployed command. Uh, and I knew that, um, you know, after seeing my little girls in the gym coming back from that time, I said, you know, this is this is the last time I want to feel this way. So I uh, I made the decision pretty rapidly to uh, to begin facilitating my exit from the army. How old were your girls when you came back from that deployment? So it, it it sounds like a ridiculous story. My youngest daughter was born a week before I left, and we left on Father's Day. So <laughs> she was she was just about to be a year old when we or just at a year old when I came back. So uh, you know you tell that story at a party, and everyone goes, oh right. So yeah. but uh, I had you know my my oldest was three or four, and and, and the baby yeah. was you know, still a baby at the time. So yeah. yeah. And so when you made your transition, you came came obviously through the Cameron Brooks program, attended a career conference. You ultimately chose behavioral health group, and I'd like to know more about that. But before we get there, you know, what were some of the opportunities you were giving consideration to other than BHG? Yeah, so um, I cast a very, fairly wide net. The only, the only thing that I thought that I wouldn't be a good fit for was, was you know, sort of corporate sales, you know, that, that, that silo. Um, and as it turns out, at my conference, I, I, I scored fairly well with all the companies except, you know, the, the kind of higher-end sales folks. So it, it sort of shifted me in that direction. So by, by the end of the conference, I was looking at um, a few opportunities specifically. Behavioral Health Group was one. Aldi Foods was another. Yeah. Uh, L3 Communications, um, running their NVG plant out in Phoenix, Arizona. Lindy Gas out in Mississippi, running sort of a, a network of natural gas, you know, stations, if you will. Yeah. Um, so yeah, oh, and then uh, Tyson Foods was the last one. Tyson Foods and their marketing department. So sure. I, I walked away with the, from the conference with you know a number of sort of interested companies in hand and a, and a really broad spectrum of the types of work I, I might be doing. Share with us what Behavioral Health Group is and what they do, and then share with us why you ultimately chose BHG. So Behavior Health Group um, was a small company, still is a relatively small company, you know, versus a Johnson and Johnson or what have you. But it was started initially by two, um, you know, recently graduated MBA folks out of Stanford. One of them's name was Jim Drought, and Jim is actually a Cameron Brooks alum, uh, somewhere in kind of the late '90s, I think, like that. And Jim and Andy started this company in 2006 uh, using a methodology that's starting to catch some wind out there, and it's called a search fund. And essentially, they're able to raise money, uh, network with folks, and they are they go out and find an industry, really take a 
take a foothold into it and start building a company, usually by acquisition and by starting new sites. And Behavior Health Group uh, operates in the in the opiate addiction treatment space, right? So healthcare, big world, right? There's a there's a small niche where uh, you're starting to see a lot of uh, you know, you can't turn on the news without hearing about pain pill addiction, opiate addiction, heroin addiction. That's what we treat. That's what we do. Uh, we run a network of substance abuse or substance use disorder treatment centers. Some people, you know, might think of them as methadone clinics, right? I think that term has some negative connotation to it. And frankly, we are, we're changing what those words mean. And I can get into that here in a little while. But uh, in, in so many ways, uh, Jim saw an opportunity to get into an industry professionalize this industry, bring some order to the chaos. Uh, and BHG has done exactly that. I joined this company, uh, you know, in January, March of 2012. Uh, we, we operated 20 opioid treatment programs. And since in the five years I've been with the company, we're now up to 40. So we, we've literally kind of doubled in, in the amount of sites. You know, our corporate back office has grown as well. And so what I've been able to see and witness, uh, and, and Rob Davis had a big role in this. I got to tell you, he, he saw what this might be when he said, look, you can, you can get into a, a larger firm. You can go to one of these bigger companies and be, be super comfortable and have a career path and a ladder and a, and a road that's very clear. Sure. Or you can get into this sort of entrepreneurial environment, which, which is not, you know, I'd say typical in a, in a Cameron Brooks conference. It certainly wasn't at, at my conference to have a smaller sure. firm, you know, in that way. Uh, and he said, if you go there and you, and you do well, what you're going to see is the evolution of a small entrepreneurial environment and watch it evolve into something bigger. And there's not a lot of people that get to watch that evolution. And, and I'm proud to say over the past five years, not only have I watched that, but I've been able to impact that and really have my hand in that evolution. So it's, it's been, um, you know, Rob's, uh, Rob's prophecy has come to fruition. <laughs> yeah. Well, when he listens to this, I know he'll really appreciate that comment. Um, <laughs> When you were making that decision, just to kind of get into that a little bit further, um, was it really was it that was that the thing that drove you, or yeah, you know, drew you toward yeah. BHG, the ability to uh, be a part? Uh, to your point, yeah, like, like you said, we we don't see a lot of entrepreneurial opportunity, more entrepreneurial opportunities at every single conference. But you know, the beauty of doing that career search is you mentioned all the companies that you had also interviewed for and most of which that you interviewed are either global or uh, Fortune or global 500 companies, but mm -hmm. BHG mm -hmm. obviously wasn't. And so was it, the, was, was it that that drew you, or was it, was it their corporate mission? Was it a little bit of everything? Yeah. What, was the, what was the thing that truly drew you in? So it was, it was a couple of things that drew me in, and then it was one kind of final you know, aspect of the analysis that really made me decide between that and another opportunity. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. So BHG at that conference was one of the you know few opportunities that was so clearly a sort of multi-site general management, you know, really get in there and, and kind of get after it sort of concept, right? You, I mean, there's a ton of opportunities at the conference that really ran the, the spectrum. But BHG, when you heard the candidates talking about it, I mean, they were literally salivating over this job. I mean, you know, all the aspects of the opportunity were good, but but the sense of like, you know, you talked when you interviewed, you talked to the guy who founded the company and he looked you in the eye and he said, look, I'm, I'm looking for people that I can trust to go out here and help me grow my business and run my business. And there's a, there's a sense of association there that I think is important. And, and in so many ways at the Cameron Brooks Conference, we're talking to hiring managers, talking to decision makers, but to sit across from the guy who founded the company and, and hear that really, really stuck with me. And, 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 and that definitely played a part. Uh, number two, 
for me specifically, I was coming out of a battery command job. Multi-site management experience was the clearest translation to my skill set. BHD definitely spoke to me in a way that was a little bit comfortable, I'd say, where it's like, okay, this is what I'm good at. This is what I do. This is the opportunity I need to go after. As it came time to decide, and, and you know, funny how things come together, it, it came down to the offer between Behavior Health Group entrepreneurial, smaller company, little bit of risk. You know, when, when you're coming out of the service, you don't understand, you know, you sort of associate small company with company that might fail. And, and frankly, that, right. that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, in my mind at the time, that's what it was. It was a small company. It was risky. Um, but, and this is when I talked to Rob, and that's when he gave me that advice. He said, man, if you, if you get in here and you knock this out and you do well, it's going to open doors for you. Um, you're you're going to be climbing a shorter ladder, if that makes some sense. Uh, and, um, you know, you you got to go all in, right? you got to burn the ships right. and, and get in there and get after it. But if you do it and you do well, then you're going to be set up. And, you know, here I am five years later, and I would say it's 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 more or less come together as, as I thought it would. Well, you've certainly done it. Let's, let's start with that first role as a regional director. You said multi-site. Um, how many sites were there, and what exactly were you doing as the regional director as it relates to running these facilities ensuring that they're, you know, maximum profitability, but I, I'm sure at the same time also maximizing patient care. Tell us more about that role. So I was initially, uh, you know, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee for the company. Great place to live. My, my family really enjoyed being there. And, and from there, over the course of my first, you know, 18 months with the company, my region started with three clinics, and then it expanded to, I think at one point I had six or seven um, and then, you know, it kind of grew to 12 for a moment there and came back down as we kind of hired and shifted. And that's one of the aspects of this kind of entrepreneurial environment is you've got to be like water. Okay. You sort of have to get in where you fit in and be able to be flexible with the company. Um, the roles were the same, no matter what, how big my scope of responsibility was. The role was very clear. You are the P&L manager for these business units. You are overall responsible for their success or failure. Uh, and in the business that we are in, um, you know, Profits are definitely, you know, number one consideration. We've got to pay the bills. We've got to pay our employees. But we are a heavily, heavily regulated environment. And, and i got to say, this isn't something that I really realized upon transitioning. But, you know, where I came from in the air defense artillery, inspections and surveys and keeping everything kind of tight and keeping your troops disciplined around, you know, the art and science of missile defense, I literally started applying that kind of concept and that attention to detail the next day in this role with Behavioral Health Group. How do we approach our compliance? How do we make sure that we are aligned properly with the state of Tennessee and the federal and the DEA guidelines? Uh, BHG at that point had, had made great strides in that way. In fact, there's a, we have a wonderful compliance department that I now oversee who had laid a lot of groundwork, but uh, I took it upon myself to, to take advantage of opportunities where gaps arose to really lean into and say, okay, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to make it to where not only do I solve this problem today, but it's going to be scalable for my entire organization. So on top of the P&L management, the hiring, the firing, all the sort of general management 101 type work, there was this added layer of, hey, we're building a company here and everything we do is going to be memorialized and, and contribute to the, you know, the foundational aspects of, of how this company is going to do business moving forward. Speak to me a little bit, you know, it, it, that makes sense, and boy, you really answered a question before I even asked it in terms of, you know, how did your military experience uh, directly relate, and how were you able to use some of that experience? I mean, you really nailed that on the head. Speak to, you know, you mentioned P&L, profit and loss. I mean, you were, you know, three centers, six centers, 12 centers, six centers. You, you were the guy 
that was answering the question about are these centers profitable? But, but you know, and you correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't think you ever managed a P&L in the Army, did you? I mean, you might have had a budget, but you weren't managing P&L, were you? Absolutely not. And and in fact, you know, you can draw some corollary between managing a budget and managing a P&L, but in, in so many ways, it's, it's just vastly more complicated. And I think mm-hmm. anybody who's exiting, you know, the military and going into a direct business management role, they're going to feel exactly what I felt. And, and that's a, maybe a deficit of knowledge around what goes into an income statement. What are the levers that I can pull to make sure that we meet this net profit or EBITDA target, uh, depending on how your company's structured, right? So, um, it was a, it was a learning process for me to to understand fully kind of what that meant and what I can do to influence it. But once I once I got those wheels under me, uh, it, it it became very intuitive and and you know replicatable. Was that the hardest thing to you know think about it? I mean, yet you can easily make comparisons between battery being a battery commander and. Mm-hmm. You know, doing multi-site leadership as a regional director, but you know, different industry, different objectives, you know, different measurements, key key performance indicators, etc. What was the hardest thing? What you know, what what took the longest to really kind of get up and going and get the flywheel moving, so to speak? So you know, I think anybody making a transition is going to have to learn that industry, learn that thing that they're getting into. Specific to my experience, uh, you know, I, I've kind of made a career of trying to become the subject matter expert at whatever I do. When I was in the military, I was a Patriot officer, but I also went to advanced schooling. They, they call it Top Gun, which, which I think is a little bit silly. But you, you literally become uh, the person to whom, you know, the battalion commander is going to look to and say, hey, is this the right way to do it? Okay, and, and I've, I've taken that approach in my civilian career because I didn't want to be blindsided. If, if you walk into a treatment center, it's kind of like being a new platoon leader. You walk in, you're in charge, but they know you don't know anything, all right? I, I refused to let myself feel that way again. And so right. um, I, knew, I knew my deficit of knowledge was, was on the regulatory side, so I just started reading everything, started analyzing patient charts, started looking for trends, trying to dig through data, and really becoming knowledgeable in the field because it, it is one, frankly, where, you know, how many letters do you have after your name? We've got counselors with PhDs, right, who've been doing this for 20, 30 years. How do you... A transitioning 30-year-old military officer resonate with with people like that. Well, you you become a subject matter expert at at the field that they're in, not not in the craft of their job, but how that sure. business is regulated, because they will see that and interpret that as you watching their back, looking after their best interests. Because you know we're all in this together. They're all licensed. They all have to give great patient care. And um, if if I do my job to make sure that we're structuring the work properly. Uh, then it frankly makes their life a lot easier, and that's and that's how you build their trust. And next thing you know, you're in a uh, leadership role and, and well regarded by your staff. That's great. I mean, I feel like you could pound a stake on that one. That that really is something to for every transitioning officer, and maybe those have even are already transitioned to to really latch on to. Excellent, excellent advice. Okay, so you were there for how long? Three years. I was in Nashville for right at. Well, let's see. I was in Nashville for three years. I actually got promoted, um, let's see, 2015? Yeah, it was three years. It three years. So okay. in Nashville for three and a half, got promoted at, at about three years in the company. And then you went on to do what? And you're, I guess you're probably doing that job now, right? Still yeah, so I went, I went okay. from regional director uh, to my current role, which is vice president of operations administration. And, gotcha. you know, it, it's a a fairly interesting role. <laughs> it's, a, it's one of the, you know, you kind of hear the operations administration, what is that? And, and 
you know, it's it's uh, kind of a unique circumstance of our company when our COO um, departed the company. It created an opportunity for you know three of the regional directors to move into into greater roles with the company. So two of our RDs moved into kind of greater turf management vice president type roles, and I took sort of the corporate, the most analogous kind of concept here is a battalion XO. I'm, I, I work directly for the CEO. I oversee a good portion of the support staff. Um, certainly run some meetings, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, right. But but I'm not in I'm not in the food chain of the clinics anymore. I'm the guy who is you know kind of like what I said, leading and advising uh, the, the battalion commander, our CEO, on you know maybe paths we should take and strategic uh, strategic you know decision making. Do you find relatability to some of what you're doing now and what you did in the military? What what I find relatable is um, the sense of you know, when you when you really take the time to learn the business and learn the craft, it it starts to become the doors open, the doors widen, right? So, for instance, yeah. if we are going into a new state and we're a company that has grown primarily by acquisition, okay, and and sometimes acquisitions are in a new state. In our business, every state has a little bit of different rules. The basic structure and bones are there, but you uh, you apply them a little bit differently. You know, in the military, as you go to different units, as you go to to you know different parts of the army, the basic bones are there, but you got to learn to adapt and be flexible. And I've definitely applied that in this role. Uh, I have I have been able to take that basic understanding. I know where to dig. I know where to go find information. And every state we go in, every new unit we acquire, if you will, uh, I'm able to succinctly and concisely you know get after that information and absorb them in a way that is is you know fairly efficient. I'd say. Um, I want to come back to one comment you made earlier. You, we, we, you said maybe we'll get into this a little bit later. You said you're trying to uh, change change the perception of, and I think you used the phrase methadone clinic. And obviously, you could look at that and think, well, that's an interesting way to phrase it. But but what are you guys working on culturally, or, or maybe not culturally, but how to better express what you do to the general public? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a couple of different aspects of that. There is our, how do we take care of our employees? What does that feel like? How do we take care of our patients? And then, you know, on a on a third dimension, what does the industry and the I'd say, you know, the nation or everybody writ large kind of think about what we do? Okay, and I'll address each of those. On the employee side, you know, this is an industry that for a long time was kind of lowest common denominator, didn't pay well, wasn't well regarded in kind of the mental health space. And I can tell you in, in a large portion of our markets and where we operate, we have really upped the game in not only the level of credentialing, but pay, benefits, how, how we treat employees. I can say unequivocally, because I interview a lot of people from other companies, we're, we are the best in the business. If, if you're going to work in the mental health field or the addiction treatment field, behavioral health group uh, at this point is the best in the game. Second, on the patient side, how we treat those patients is, is again, uh, you know, if you roll back about 10 years or so, 15 years, there, there was definitely a pervasive mindset of, you know, these patients are drug addicts and they're here and we're going we're gonna to make them do this treatment protocol. And it is very adversarial. And, and I'm speaking broadly here. There's obviously some rays of sunshine out there. But, but for a long time, this industry was not very hospitable for the patient. They were coming for treatment because they had no other option or they had hit rock bottom. We are on a mission to inculcate and you know proliferate a culture of a welcoming environment you know our motto is hope respect and caring and we want every patient that walks in the door to really feel a sense of hope 
be respected by the staff and know that and know that we care about them. And, and frankly, at this point in our evolution, we we are an attractive company to work for, and we won't we won't tolerate people who don't project those values. And so, I'd say over the past two years, we've gone through a pretty significant vetting of uh, defining of our corporate culture and vetting of that culture to really understand, you know, what does it take to build a high quality company in the mental health space. And I, I think we're there. I think we've defined it and. Um, you know, we're we're really getting after it in the hiring process and how we how we bring folks aboard. The well, third the aspect really, of that, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just want to say this real quick. The really neat thing about it is, considering you've been with the company for over five years, feels like you've had such a major part of that. I like to think I have. I mean, I, where we have made, I think, the biggest impact, and you know, I'm proud to say that I've been a part of this is is how we train and how we develop leaders, okay? You know, if Jim Drought's listening to this, he might cringe a little bit. When I joined the company, uh, you know, I went to Dallas, the corporate headquarters, and I, um, I got my laptop, I got my credit card, and I went to Jim's office, who's the COO and my boss, and said, hey, man, I'm, I'm here. He kind of, he kind of, I'm paraphrasing here, but he looked at me and said, what are you still doing here, man? <laughs> I, don't, I don't need you up here. Get out there, get after it, tell me what's going on out in these clinics. I said, Roger that, boss. And so there, you know, got a plane <laughs> ticket, and I was and I was off to the races. Um, you know, and and what what I found when I came aboard was there wasn't a formal onboarding program for managers. There wasn't a sense of, you know, philosophy around leadership and how we run a clinic. And and to your point, Pete, I, I have had a hand in building that over the years. Right? We've got onboarding materials. We've got you know directionally how we how we take these uh, you know these regional directors and program directors and train them. Now we bring them all to Nashville. They go through a fairly rigorous program to understand what it takes to to run an effective treatment center uh, and that's 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 unprecedented for this industry so yeah I, I like to think I've had a, a positive influence on how we do that and um, you know got a lot of other people that have their hands in that but I've, I've certainly got the lens sure. of experience over the past five years you were gonna go on to a third point but I just want to and I, I do want to hit that I just want to camp out one more question here uh, as it relates to mm -hmm. what you're talking about um, I've been talking a lot lately about a book called The Ideal Team Player by Patrick Lencioni, and and, yep. and in the book it talks a lot about you know recruiting for some some specific attributes that 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 will help a company to reach their professional and corporate goals, whatever it might be. What types of um, you know what kind of recruiting techniques or what are some of the competencies you're looking for and and that, you may not be doing a ton of recruiting now maybe you are maybe you aren't but I'm sure you were doing a ton as a regional director what kind of things were you working on because that's not really something you do in the military it's not and and frankly recruiting is a is a skill that um, I, I think it came sort of natural to me I guess maybe maybe not for everybody but yeah you're right as a regional director I was on the floor of, of gymnasiums at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville talking to, you know, masters of social work candidates about coming to work for us. And I, I think there's there's some very specific attributes that we're looking for. And, uh, you know, number one, as it pertains to our nurses and our directors, especially a sense of we may not want them to be OCD, but we want them to be very detail oriented. Right. We, we stock millions of milligrams of medication in all of our facilities. And the accountability of that medication uh, is something that is, you know, if it goes wrong, we could get into a lot of trouble. So we want folks who are keyed in on the details, they think they're important and they're willing to spend time making sure that the that the ship is moving in the right direction. On our counselor's side, uh, and, and even on our director's side, we, we want this sort of perfect blend of compassion uh, as well as, you know, 
I'll call it leadership, Pete, right? There, there's a sense when these patients come to us, they often have nobody in their life that is, you know, holding them accountable or really, you know, there's nobody for them to disappoint. They've disappointed everybody in their life, right? We want counselors and, and clinical staff to come work for us that can establish a relationship with these patients to where if they don't show up one day, we're calling. They know we're going to call because we care about them. There's a sense of compassion tied to a little bit of sense of, you know, the capacity to build a really, really strong therapeutic relationship. So it's a little bit different depending on the staffing, but, um, you know, the, the thread amongst all of that is a capacity for respect. And, and you know, one of, our, one of our favorite tricks is to see how somebody interacts with the wait staff. We'll take them out to lunch and, and, you know, get them out of the office. And the old, the old uh, if they're rude to the wait staff trick, you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I like it. We we talk a lot of the same thing around here. Okay, so I kind of derailed you earlier. You were talking employees and patients in terms of some of the cultural, and then and then you were going to really address kind of public perception, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I've I've had a pretty heavy role in our outward facing. You could call it marketing, but really it's just how we interact with the with the community at large. As a regional director, I certainly did my fair share of speaking. A uh, number of engagements from both, you know, local judges to, um, you know, even legislators in the state of Tennessee, working with the various regulatory agencies, and, and, you know, what an opportunity, right? In an industry where the bar used to be so low, well, from physical plant to just treatment performance, we've been able to, you know, raise our standards. And as such, when we have regulators darken our door, or if we have you know, I've, I've hosted media in a number of our treatment centers. There, there's some good Army Army training applicability for it. Media engagement, what do you do when they walk into your lobby? Well, <laughs> I knew exactly what to do, right? So um, we've, we've been able to take those opportunities and, and make them into something that was very positive, whereas in this industry it used to be very negative. I mean, there's, a, there's still a stigma out there against treatment. There's a stigma against what happens in a clinic. There's all these fallacies around it, raising crime and all that. And I'm, I'm the guy with the data to prove all of them wrong. And I, and I love getting in front of a group of people, hostile or not, and telling them about what we do, our outcomes, and how we help patients every single day. i got to tell you, Derek, you have applied. I'm super impressed. You have applied an, Im an immense amount of leadership uh, to an organization that uh, sounded like, you know, from the start it was on the right foot. But uh, I, I, they obviously got the right guy when they picked you up five years ago. <laughs> I appreciate, that. Um, appreciate that. Let me, let me as we kind of land the plane here a little bit, this has been great, very, very helpful. Let me ask you a couple personal questions. What are you, uh, what are you working on right now professionally? Are you investing in any podcast or reading any books or following? You know, what, what are you working yeah, on right now? Yeah. yeah, so I, you know, I've got about a 45-minute drive, you know, one way. Uh, every single day and podcasts have kind of, I've just kind of recently gotten on podcast bandwagon. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Jocko podcast is, is obviously my favorite. I think everybody's catching on to this. Um, Jocko Willink, you know, Navy SEAL 20 years. He, he wrote a book, Extreme Ownership, which I think I read it last September, October. And I've, I've quite literally been listening to his series of podcasts ever since. Just, just an immense amount of really, really concise lessons from his time in the SEAL teams as well as, you know, the, the folks he worked with. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to, to listen to any of his stuff, but, um, you know, it's it's something that I think the the American man, especially in America, or American man, female, whatever, uh, they, yeah. they need it right now. We need, you know, there's so much literature out there. There's so much leadership development stuff. Jocko really kind of distills this down into some sort of little bites um, that, that just make a lot of sense. His, his tagline is 
discipline equals freedom. And uh, it sounds so simple, but in my business in particular, discipline <laughs> does equal freedom, right? If we if we do our daily work on the compliance measures, uh, on you know keeping the facility maintained, and we do our quality checks and all that, that allows us to take great care of these patients. You know, so there's a lot of really really applicable applicable stuff coming out of him. So I, I highly yeah. recommend the, the Jocko podcast. Sounds good. I have not yet. I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I've seen it, but uh, but have yet to uh, tune in. But I, of course, as soon as we finish this call, I'll go ahead and subscribe and uh, make it part of part of my routine. Great. Sounds excellent. And uh, and the fat last question is, um, especially for for um, officers, military officers still in the military. How about a piece of advice? How about you know knowing what you know and and you have imparted a lot here today. Any parting advice that you'd give to uh, someone thinking about making a transition? Well, you know, a, a couple of things. There is um, there's a big world out there, right? And, and and five years ago, well, five and a half years ago, if you'd have said I'd be working in addiction treatment, I would have asked what addiction treatment was, <laughs> frankly. Um, you know, the, the, the Cameron Brooks process, I, I believe in it. I went through it. You know, I'm I'm living a, a life that I want to live right now, and that's largely due to the opportunities presented to me at the conference. And you know, that's why I have steered a number of my great friends in that direction. They're all doing very well as well, and I will continue to do so. Um, if I'm a officer looking to transition right now, I'm gonna I would tell them to trust the process, uh, keep an open mind on both location, salary, industry, uh, because it, it's it's proven now at this point that no matter what you get into, you're going to, you know, there's going to be all kinds of opportunities. You're going to find the one that you zero in on for whatever reason. For me, it was a certain set of reasons. For someone else, it might be a different set of reasons. But if you get in there and, and as Jocko would say, get after it and really learn your industry, become a subject matter expert and, and take the time to be the best at whatever you're doing, the doors will open. The doors will just open. If, if you get in there and, and it doesn't work out, I, I, I can almost guarantee you it's because you didn't burn the ships and, and, and get after it. Uh, I've seen folks come. I've seen folks go. Um, for me, you know, I've, I've been fairly successful in a short amount of time, and it's, I think, directly tied to, uh, you know, just my complete buy-in to, okay, this is where I am now. This is what I do. Just like you let yourself be defined as a military officer for that period of time, whatever you become on the outside, that is your identity now. That's what you do, and you got to go 100%. This has been an amazing 40-ish minutes, however long we've been meeting. I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity to sit with you. I know your time is valuable, but uh, I guarantee that people will take a lot from uh, from this relatively short podcast and run with it. I know I have personally. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Derek, thank you very much for taking time and meeting with me and sharing your uh, your experiences. Uh, best of success in the future. Thank you, Pete. I've really enjoyed it. Any opportunity I, I can take to to help folks transition and, and do it properly and do it well, you know, I, I relish that opportunity. So thanks to you and the Cameron Brooks team for uh, for the opportunity.